Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to episode 82 of Conquering Columbus. Mr. Sam Havlock, and Sam is a former Navy SEAL. He's got a lot of entrepreneurial experience as well. Definitely think you guys are going to enjoy this show. Before we get to that interview, though, guys, I want to take a moment and ask you all for a quick favor. Go ahead, pick up that phone of yours you were listening to this on, and uh, check out your podcast app, whether it's iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, uh, whatever you like to listen on. Uh, there will be a subscribe button. And if you click that, it'll make sure that you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. And the last thing we want to do before we start the show is take the time to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH, they are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net and let them know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. For more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. All right, Conkers, that's all we got. Let's get this show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to Conquering Columbus. This is episode 82 of the show, and we are really excited to have Sam Havelock on the show today. Uh, Sam's a former Navy SEAL and is Senior Managing Director of Industrica. And Industrica is a venture development agency that designs, builds, and commercializes technology platforms. Uh, Sam is also the founder of SOFEX, the Special Operations Forces Network, a technology company focused on serving the needs of special operators and a global network of high-impact people. And the SOFEX mission is to fight evil and avert suffering at scale through the use of their network. And uh, while Sam doesn't really have any direct affiliations with Columbus, Ohio, we're excited for the chance to interview him and we really feel his experience and advice will be a great tool for all you guys out there. So uh, welcome to Conquering Columbus, Sam. Thank you very much, guys. I appreciate the uh, the invite to spend some time with you on this winter's day. 
Uh, here in South Carolina, it's not quite as bad as I have to imagine it, it might be uh, where you are, but <laughs> I think we'll uh, we'll all survive, so that's good. Yeah, Mike's actually in California right now, so he's living the dream, but it's a brisk, uh, probably four degrees here in, here in Columbus, Ohio, so not quite... Not quite the same for me. Um, but, you know, the place that we typically like to take it off is maybe just talk a little bit about start your background and work your way up till maybe when you get out of high school and talk about what your childhood was like, family, whatever you feel like the high points were that really formed your later years in life. Sure. Um, I grew up in uh, in northern New Jersey. And uh, basically, when ever since I was a little kid, I sort of always dreamed about being a soldier. You know, that's kind of what consumed me as a, as a child I, I can remember you know back in the day you know when I was a young boy maybe you know five or six the age I am most of the influences uh, some of the influences in my life were these returning uh, veterans from Vietnam uh, a couple in particular worked at the school I was at um, and I would often go to army navy stores that had just piles of this junk left over from the war. It was all musty and nasty, but I'd bring that stuff out to a Boy Scout events and sort of play war. And it's just just what I sort of always dreamed of being and doing when I grew up uh, under the belief that, you know, these soldiers were somehow superheroes or something. So I think that that's kind of, I was just bitten, bitten at an early age with this notion that a, a soldier or a warrior is kind of what I wanted to be. What did your family members do, like your parents and any siblings or anything? Sure. Um, well, both of my parents have, uh, you know, unfortunately had passed away. They had me a bit later in life. But my dad was was an entrepreneur in, in New York, um, New York City. He ran a transportation company uh, for a number of years, and he, he eventually sold it. And then, uh, like many people from New York do, you know, moved down to Florida. By that time, I was already an adult. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Um, and uh, my sister is uh, is is really a uh, sort of works at the county courthouse up in up in New Jersey and has been a civil servant for a number of years. So fairly, you know, fairly modest and, and normal normal family. And then, at what point did your uh, you know did you really did you make the jump and go into the military? Was that right after high school or? Sure. It, it, so it's an interesting story. So the. I really was a bit, I was a bit confused as to whether I really wanted to go into the military directly after high school, but my parents were sort of, you know, really wanted me to go to college. I wound up reading Pat Conroy's book, The Lords of Discipline, which was about the Citadel in South Carolina. And really, I applied there. It was the only place I applied. I got in and I just went, you know, right after high school, I was over, you know, really within weeks. I applied to go into the summer program so I could knock out a couple classes ahead of knob year starting. So that's, you know, just showed up at the Citadel and that was kind of four years of exposure into cadet life, which was really the start of the military career. Yeah. And so after that, what made you decide to pursue life as a SEAL specifically? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, so that's a whole se- So actually my, my original military career started out as a, as a reservist in the Marine Corps. So right after Nob year, I like within two or three days of, of finishing my Nob year at the Citadel, I enlisted in the Marine Reserve and shipped to boot camp the next week. So the summer between sophomore and junior year, I went to Paris Island 
uh, which was also in South Carolina, graduated from boot camp and then was a drilling reservist through college as a Marine. Then I wound up getting a Marine uh, contract uh, to be a, a, naval av- or, you know, a Marine aviator after college. So I went to flight school, but I didn't make it through that program. Um, and then in, as time passed, I'd read a different book called uh, Men with Green Faces. And it was about the SEAL team experience in Vietnam. And that became kind of smitten with this idea, well, maybe I can do an inter-service transfer to the Navy and go in the SEAL teams. And that's basically what I wound up doing was having to pester the Bureau of, of Naval Personnel for about two two years to to allow me a slot to go to BUDS. So, Did you make it through BUDS on your on your first attempt? or? Yes, I was blessed. Uh, you know, I was lucky because I showed up at BUDS. I was an old-timer by that point. I was almost 27, 28 years old, uh, which is old for BUDS. And so you don't really have the recovery, believe it or not, you don't really have the recovery rate that 18 to 22-year-olds have, which was often most of the class. So what, what I lacked in physical resilience I had to make up for in guile and cunning, but it worked out. I made it through with the first pass. <laughs> yeah, that is good. So do you mind if I ask, what, what was the most challenging part of the um, flight school of aviation training that, you know, you know, I feel like it's a pivotal sure. moment of, hey, not making it through flight school and then, okay, well, I guess I'll just go be a SEAL, you know, <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting <laughs> right. uh, jump there. So I'm curious about what was, what was it that was so difficult about flight school for you? I was scared of flying. I mean, it's it's just that simple. I was getting very nauseous in the airplane, and the instructor that I had um, was a fairly new instructor, and was also, you know, you, you sort of instructors at flight school break in one of two directions. They're either really sort of coach based back then. I don't know how the training's changed now, or they were sort of punishers. And they would make it a pretty stressful environment out of the gate. Um, I was already pretty nervous. I, I just didn't take to it. And the situation made it such that it was really untenable. I, I, I hadn't learned. I wasn't learning as fast as I needed to because I, I just think I was scared, frankly, of, of flying. And, that, yeah. and so I was voted not aeronautically adaptable or whatever they put stamp <laughs> on you. And they moved, moved me off to a different job in the Marine Corps. So then you made the pivot to the seals, where they throw you out of planes rather than actually flying them. It sounds like a sounds like I a hated, transition. I absolutely like I was, so I wound up eventually getting free fall qualification, and everything else. But make no mistake, you know I I still hate flying, and I still hate, and I hated every single jump from the first one to the last always. But that's kind of the trick, right? Like the it's. People, the secret hiding in plain sight is not that SEALs or Green Berets or Rangers aren't afraid. They're humans and they have fears like anybody else. What they're able to do is sort of master themselves and impose enough self-discipline to confront those fears. That's the trick. It's not that they're braver than other people. It's not that they're more courageous than, than anybody else. You know, infantrymen are plenty courageous, plenty strong, plenty athletic. You know, it's 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 this mastery over really your own fear, I think. And that transitions kind of well on our next question. I think that you can learn a lot about buds and the training for seals and all that through all the documentaries that are out there. But some of the things that at least I never hear about are what life is like once you become a seal. And you know, you mentioned a little bit about the Green Berets and some of the other special forces groups. 
um, to kind of encompass two questions into one, what does your relationship look like with those groups while you're in the military? And do you see the same level of, you know, elite individual and, and high performing um, people who really want more out of their life and the other special forces as you do in the SEALs? Yeah, I, so there's a, a uni- I have a theory of special operations that there's a unifying characteristic that most people don't write about, don't really make movies about uh, because it's a very nuanced finding that I, that I believe, you know, it's my thesis, maybe I'm wrong. But I think that the unifying characteristic of all special operations forces is that they were individually born with a very high entrepreneurial quotient. And if, if you start to look at the special operations community through that lens, and owning a media company that focuses day in and day out on the special operations community, SOFX, I get to see all the angles, and I get to see them internationally. And what I can say is that it's not the common misconception that is, is it's the superior sort of toughness and mental fitness and they're mentally tough and they're and they're they're fit and and everything else but there's plenty of people who are tough and fit the unifying characteristic is that these people sought to have a place where they could practice creative degrees of freedom in their operational art and also onboard a lot of risk with the hope of being personally accountable for their decisions and able to affect change in a very synergistic way to have an outsized sort of outcome that defines an entrepreneur. So what you wind up seeing in the community is very, very creative people. I often say, Hey, look, if those guys weren't in the seal teams or in, you know, the green braids or something, they'd be the creatives with nose rings. They might be in prison. They might be up in hate Ashbury. They, you know, they would not be, you know, showing up to a nine to five, thing anywhere it's because these are and if you look at statistically speaking i think the special operations community makes up about depending on how you're counting because there's different ways to do that about three and a half to five percent of the department of defense on a given day between the support segments and then the, the actual tactical operators you know every big organization every big enterprise needs their innovation cell that's what the special operations community is to the department of defense not only in the united states but globally and that's why you're seeing a high utilization rate of special operations globally, because dynamic change on the battlefield is the constant. And typically, entrepreneurial or innovative ecosystems can respond to that dynamic change in a way that's much more effective than than some of the more conventional approaches, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's definitely <clears throat> definitely an interesting concept. And I really, really kind of like how you put that. It's an interesting way to think about it, something that I've never really considered in my time. But so what are some key experiences though or takeaways that you had personally in your time as special operations and that you've been able to apply maybe as your time as a venture developer, you know, founder of these early stage companies as you've been, you know, working that entrepreneurial spirit that you have? Sure. I mean I think that the thing that the community prepares you with and what you see on the battlefield again and again is that decisions and actions that are linked to a well-formed decision, but an action taken sooner rather than later causes beneficial imbalances that sort of weigh to your upside. 
And so I'll put that in a simpler way. Like special operations community members have a tendency to, to think quickly and act. And so they have an extreme action bias. Now, what happens there is that they're imposing their will on the world or on the environment. And then that causes whoever's competing against them in that market for whatever it is, whether it's a firefight or whether it's an information operation where people are battling for the hearts and minds of a particular village. You know, the action bias that a special operator imposes on the world creates these butterfly effects, so to speak, that winds up having sort of an outsized capability to influence. And if you, if you tie that back to the venture development world, the entrepreneurial world, when people say that, when a venture capitalist, for instance, says, hey, I'm not, you know, I'm not as concerned about the technology as I am about the team. What they're doing is they're really articulating that an investment in people that are going to use extremely good judgment with an action bias are going to make things happen independent of the technology. Because this is sort of a secret that's hiding in plain sight, although I, would, I can imagine that people would, would call, me, call into question whether it's true or not. I believe that technology is actually a commodity because capital is a commodity. So ca if capital is a commodity, and what I mean by technology is a commodity, what I'm saying is that there's more abundance of technology available to leverage than there are competent operators that can possibly execute against those opportunities. If I take you any university system and we go over to the technology transfer officer, They'll open up their coat like a bunch of watches in the coat and say, we've got all these sort of eye-watering things that are available for license. Would you like to license them? Well, no, because we don't have enough execution agents to actually form a team necessarily that can take things from, from point A on the commercialization and development timeline up to something that's uh, commercially viable and market-ready. So, you know, you can get capital behind good ideas. You just can't necessarily find enough good teams to execute against the opportunities that are out there. Uh, a bit of a sort of rabbit hole, but maybe it serves some of the entrepreneurial community that listens to, uh, to Conquering Columbus. Yeah, I think it definitely does. And, uh, you know, I think we can carry that into talking about the Special Operations Forces Network and what it went into founding that, kind of what your passion was behind it, what your mission is now, and... Uh, kind of what your team looks like there. Sure. Um, so SOFX is basically a realized set of capabilities that starts to get at the idea that in the information age, much of the tools that governments are using to try to battle the forces of evil are going to be ineffective and too slow to, be, to actually have an effect. And so the theory is, if good people, high-impact people of the world can band together to create a more just and, and perfect society as a global coalition of the willing, we can conduct our own special operations. They may not be dynamic special operations that involve gunfire and explosive breach charges and fast ropes and whatever, but I'll give you an example. You know, there are sensitive warrior networks all over. It may come in the form of a nonprofit that is working on an initiative to counter child traffic, or it could be 
any number of different ad hoc collaborative groups that are battling some form of evil. They're all over the place. So SOFX is a belief that if we can create a communication system that can link former special operations people with other high-impact people that perhaps are involved in sensitive warrior networks of their own, then we can have a synergistic recapitalization of everything the government has already invested in those people as a force of good globally. So I don't believe necessarily in the government's, any government's ability to battle the dynamic pace of, of basically, th they're called threat networks is the official term. But globally connected network threat networks that are trying to do us harm unless we create alternate complex adaptive systems that can battle them. That's what SOFX is. It's essentially a, a global coalition of very, very talented, very, very connected, very, very capable people. Yeah, and so how, how do you leverage that network then to, you know, directly, I mean, can you give us any examples of how that network sure. is leveraged? Yeah, so for, you know, for example, um, we would get a request for, hey, I'm going to shut this other phone here, sorry about this. We might get a, re a request uh, from what I would call a non-traditional organization that, that really had no ability to figure out how they might be able to find a special operations intelligence expert that can help them to be the, sort of their chief uh chief of strategy, as an example. But by building a bridge between all these different organizations and the special operations, the real special operations community, not the thing that you see on that Hollywood puts out, what we're able to do is quickly and efficiently connect organizations that feel they need access to that network of global talent, which admittedly is a very dark market. Because what we're the market that we're talking about is human capital that has been has intentionally kept themselves obscure for their professional careers. The government does its level best to ensure that everything that they do is is you know not easy to find. And then the secondary market for those capabilities usually come in the form of private military security contracting companies or other. Otherwise, aka in the old days known as mercenaries. And these are, that's a poor term to use, but in the big scheme of things, there's a lot of different organizations that are forces for good around the world that could, could really benefit from more direct access to special operations veterans who can be recapitalized into a variety of different directions, whether it's to increase the leadership capability of a company. We do that pretty often doing a sort of a leadership upfit of a middle market company that can't afford a general electric type of, of leadership academy, but they want to perhaps get a training director that is a former special operator that, that understands how to work with the junior and mid-level leaders to create a high, high performing organization uh, that's recontextualized in, in, in their format, whether it's manufacturing or, or technology or whatever. So it's basically creating a bridge into the community, which has been a very dark market for a number of great reasons. And it also seems like from an outside perspective, it probably is 
a great avenue for a lot of um, people who are maybe not, I guess, being deployed anymore to kind of find another purpose here and, you know, in normal everyday life. Because I, I, and I'd like to hear your perspective on this, I guess. I hear a lot of things about people who are getting out of the special operations communities and just struggling to adapt to normal society. Do you find that making these connections and plugging them into these networks for worthy causes helps kind of combat that issue? It does, and I have a, you know a set of ideas that have to do with with the the time dimension under which we are trying to repatriate these particular veterans happens on a chronology that's totally out of sync with reality. So they've been running so hard, so fast for so many years, and then we have an expectation that we're going to be able to to help them design a future worth having in the space of anywhere from six to 18 months at the best case, you know, prior to their leaving. What we do when we publish our daily newsletter is we always include technology and entrepreneurialism and other things that are giving everybody an insight as to future possibilities. And by doing that in a quick sort of lifestyle magazine type way, there, I don't even know if I mentioned it prior, so we publish a daily newsletter it doesn't cost a dime uh, you have to request membership and we'll kind of look at your social profile you don't have to be from the special operations community you just have to be interested in high performance and special operations related things but well, that the way up in the show notes as well yeah Thanks. yeah for sure for sure just put it put it in there the, the link um to answer your question that what we're giving back to the community is all sorts of different ideas as to how they might want to recapitalize after they get out. We all have to get out at some point. To answer the other edge of your question with regards to purpose and meaning um, in, in, in a post-retirement or post-separation standpoint, one of the big ideas we have is to create essentially a think tank where they can participate even after they've left uniform service. The think tank could be used to, to work with them Either a nonprofit may want to work with a collection of them to for a particular hard problem set that they might be dealing with in some country, and we can curate a group of former soft guys who had been part of that, and not just soft guys, but to create a smart mob. So it could be a panel of experts that includes a handful of soft guys and a handful of other experts to kind of work on a rapid ad hoc collaborative basis to tackle a problem for either... For, if it was for a nonprofit, then it would be a pro bono thing, people who want to give back. If it's for a corporation, our idea is we charge you know a nominal you know fee for that. but it's it's a twenty first century model of putting together very experienced and regionally you know sort of regionally exposed people who've got a deep insight as to what's happening on the ground. if you if you know anything about network, um, Network science, all the value is at the edge of the network. Well, typically special operations, intelligence people, and, and sort of the ground pounders have been at the edges of these human networks. So they're really, really valuable set of experiences and insights about the way the world really works in places where mainstream media just doesn't go. So it's, you know, I, I think a fascinating capability to tap talent that's that, that has been wrapped up in a pretty dark market for quite a while yeah it definitely is is there <clears throat> is there ever any concern with sofx um and those networks you know providing those connections with people that uh, you mentioned earlier 
you know, a lot of these guys and a lot of these uh, team members in SOFX have spent their most of their lives trying not to be connected, trying to stay out of the uh, spotlight. So is there any concern about, you know, maybe data breaches, anything like that with SOFX where, um, you know, trying sure. to keep identities safe? Yeah, absolutely. So we've got mechanisms in place. Um, so the, the use case that I just described where we would curate a think tank for on a uh, sort of a, a particular basis, um, we would do that on our network domain or .NET domain. And we've got our program managers that manage those, those spirals is what we call them. Uh, basically, we can obscure the identity of the participants while acting as a market maker to ensure that these John Doe's are who they say they are. We, we know who they are. And the client, whether it's the nonprofit or the company, uh, may or may not um, get to know who John Doe number one or number two is. Uh, it, it, it's not necessarily a requirement. They'll know that these are truly you know, the people that they were trying to engage. And the optionality really falls to the individual member as well. Do they want to be in true name or do they want to contribute and be complete alias? So as our, our role in the world is to create an efficient market and to keep them protected. Because you can't, the Facebooks of the world, the LinkedIn's, all of that stuff is so porous at this point that those are, I call them deeply untrusted networks. So what we're trying to do is create a different tier of communication layer where where it's being run in a way that protects all the different actors, and it's very methodical. It takes time, but you can do it with a disciplined sort of team. If that makes sense. And yeah, we would not per, we would not permit the transmission of confidential information. You know that would be a violation of law and everything else. So it would it would be really much more benign type stuff, but it's still valuable. You know, what are the atmospherics in a, in a given location? We might have an oil industry executive. We might have a former special operator. We might have a, a, a person that lives in the place of a hard to get to place. And they're able to collaborate with company X or nonprofit X. And then Karen from there, um, can we talk a little bit about Industrica, if I'm pronouncing that correctly and what your role sure. was like with the company and uh, everything that you guys had going on? You are, uh, yeah. It's, uh, um, so Industrica is a venture development agency. And what we do is we take early stage technologies from a low technology readiness level and we apply formats and templates to move them up the value chain, try to achieve a product market fit. And we basically achieve a cost synergy by running it on the, in the format of a program executive office. What do I mean by that? So my last job in the special operations community was as a program manager for some major combat systems down at U.S. Special Operations Command. A lot of people give the government a hard time saying that the government's not that innovative, blah, 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 and the acquisition system's real slow, so, so on and so forth. But if you really examine the government systems of technology maturation, it's really quite good and on net, very effective. And the reason I say that is because if you look at modern venture capital, the entire system's optimized to ensure a payout assuming an 8 out of 10 failure rate. Well, any systems engineer is going to tell you that a system that's, that's that having an 80% failure rate is a broken system. There's major issues with that. 
the thing, what the government does is we don't build, like when I was in the government, we don't, we consolidate the overhead and the expensive expertise in a shared resource center called the PEO. And then we develop and mature the technologies with a pretty lean approach called the assistant program managers who are putting together ad hoc teams and taking the, tech, the defense technology from one readiness level up through different uh, formal steps of a program management process to achieve certain milestones and key performance parameters that are part of the cost schedule and performance objectives of the project. All Industrica is doing is basically taking the DOD program management and PEO structure and applying that to venture. So that's exactly how we're able to build SOFX on a shoestring. It's exactly how uh, another startup I was involved with called Xeriscope, we built that. It's a Android-based telemedicine uh, platform. Uh, and then there's a couple of other uh, uh, startups that we are concurrently developing on the platform. So SOFX is a child of the Industrica machine, so to speak, if that makes sense. I'm not a venture capitalist. I don't deploy capital into other people's technologies or operations. What we do is we create essentially a program office that is capable of incubating several different uh, technologies at once. Typically, we'll be running two technology projects that are proprietary accounts. These are internal things we're developing. And then we'll typically run two or three client-facing accounts, which means we're Building a um, building a technology company for a client. Um, sometimes it's because the the IP was repossessed from a you know a team that broke up on the rocks for whatever reason, so on and so forth. So if that makes sense, it's not too different than Bill Gross's Idea Lab and a couple of other. But there's really only a handful. So the other one is Trendlines in Israel. They use the same model. It's a proven model. It typically has you know over a ten year run rate you can expect 70 to 80% success rate. So it's very different. Than, you uh, mentioned a couple companies there, but uh, you know, what, what if some of the success has been the high points and maybe even a low point if something sticks out? And then what does the future look like for you guys? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, the high point, realize, you know, uh, Industrica is, um, you know, we've been running this model really since about uh, 2013 is when I started. Um, it's too early to tell. Really, we're going to need about a 10-year run to know how many you know, wins, losses, or draws we're going to have across the portfolio. Uh, involvements, I've said to, to date, I've, I'm materially involved in about five or, depending on how you're counting, six different uh, technology-oriented uh, startups. SOFX, for example, is already cash flowing. Uh, it's already, already past break-even. Uh, and we've got uh, some of the other ones are... Uh, are, are already sort of revenue generating. So, but they're, like all things, startups take time to hit a product market fit and uh, and uh, you know achieve scale. So, we'll have to readdress that that probably in about two years' time. We'll have a stronger sense. Definitely. And so, a lot of our listeners, Sam, are entrepreneurs, young professionals, age you know nineteen to thirty five. Um, you have anything that you think they should be doing to help build themselves, professionals, people, in order to achieve the things they want to do in their careers? 
Yeah, I think if you're going to pursue an entrepreneurial path, kind of the best thing to do is show up to a startup and do the work. Like it's one that you can take all the courses. There's some great ones from Kaufman Institute, Steve Blank's Lean Startup uh, courses, uh, a variety of different things that are really valuable. But all the key learnings happen in the space where you're being forced to make decisions under conditions of stress, pressure, and ambiguity. It's also where most of the opportunity is because if you're competent at a startup, you tend to pick up a lot of responsibility very quickly because oftentimes there's a lot of people that maybe are less competent. And so that's where where you're going to wind up having the most uh, bang for the buck in terms of time uh, invested. If you're within a corporation and you're, you want to practice entrepreneurialism, you know, eventually realize that it gets harder and harder as time marches on. So if you have an opportunity to work at an early stage company where you can be compensated at some level and learn, you know, that is being paid to learn, which is just hugely valuable would be my advice. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And uh, as we carry kind of into our last question, one of the theme of our show is live uncomfortably because we found a lot of people in, in our lives and that we've talked to through the podcast of live their life uncomfortably for some significant period of time to achieve what they are in life. Um, what does the word mean to you and, and what kind of comes to mind when you think about it and how does it apply to you? Yeah, I, uh, I think that living uncomfortably means stretching yourself to grow. I think it means taking on the risks that don't feel right to most people but that's where all the possibilities lie that's where all the opportunity is because by nature if you're doing what everybody else is willing to do you're going to have the outcomes that everybody else gets and for the most part you know people revert back to sort of a a medium level of performance and a medium level of expectation about how their lives are going to play out, how their wealth is going to build, whatever the case may be. But it doesn't have to be that way, right? It's your choice. You're either going to choose to do the things that are uncomfortable and bear whatever is necessary to achieve greatness. You're going to be a living superhero in some context, whether it's on a battlefield, whether it's in tech startup, whatever the case may be. Or you can choose really to live your life in the middle. And that's really a power that each person has to decide you know, how they want to carry out uh, the limited time they have on Earth. Definitely, Sam. And, hey, we really appreciate it. I think that's a great answer and a great place to wrap up. So we really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show today. I was very excited to be with you guys. And uh, I invite all your listeners to go uh uh, check out SOFX. I think it's very interesting and uh, I'm pretty easy to find on uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and uh, and uh, easy to find. So yeah. reach out if you need to. Talk to you guys soon. All right, Conquerors. That was episode 82 of Conquering Columbus. We hope you guys learned a lot, enjoyed the episode. We'll talk to you next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. 
Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH, they are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net and let them know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. For more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.